Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to the book of Colossians. Open it to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 23 of Colossians 1. By way of introduction, praise God for the ministry of Pastor John and Pastor Peter in the last two weeks, preaching through Malachi and Hebrews. Um, it's a joy to feast on the word that they have preached to us, and we continue now back in our series in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, going to verse 23. Hear then the word of God. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. It's not too different from your own translation. Sorry to say, forgot to say that. And also, it's on page 1043. If you don't have a Bible, you could grab the Pew Bible under the chair in front of you, the black hardcover, page 1043. Um, the chapter numbers are the big numbers, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. So if I say Colossians 1, 15, 1 is the big number, 15 is the small number. All right, hear God's word. Speaking of the Son. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything, everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now you have been reconciled by his physical body through his death to present you holy and blameless and faultless before him. If, indeed, you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and, not, and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us in all wisdom. Father, this is our prayer, that you'd fill us with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that we would grow increasingly in the knowledge of you, that we would know Christ. We do pray that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. And so what we're asking you very specifically this morning is that you would push the goodness of the preeminence of Christ so deep into our minds and hearts that it functionally shifts and changes our lives so that we always live joyfully thankful to you regardless of circumstances, regardless of more shallow and shifting circumstances more accurately. So, Lord, only you can press these truths deep into our souls. Only your spirit can do this. And so I am desperate for you. We are desperate for you. We need you. And we come confidently in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, our savior, who is indeed preeminent over all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Things have been tense as war has broken out in Europe and has the potential to draw the USA into the war, perhaps, the potential of nuclear war. So all of us are on edge, for those of you who've been paying attention to what's been going on in our world events this month. And so some people might say the common phrase, thoughts and prayers with, with the people there. That's a... If you, if you look up thoughts and prayers memes or the critique of thoughts and prayers, that's been critiqued by a lot of people. What good are thoughts and prayers? So one meme has a picture of a, of a, a truck, a U-Haul, and it's wide open, and it says, excellent news at the top. And it says, the first truckload of your thoughts and prayers have just arrived, and inside it's open, and it's an empty 
It's an empty U-Haul. You're just looking at empty U-Haul. Good news. There's another meme that says, you know, there's, there's a, it's a comic strip and there's a guy drowning a little bit further from the pier. And he's like, help! And the guy says, oh no, that's, some guy on the, on the pier says, oh no, that's terrible. And he says, my thoughts and prayers are with you. And then uh, the guy's all, but thoughts and prayers as he drowns. Um, because the, the idea there that thoughts and prayers are useless. In the, in the Atlantic, there was an article written a few years ago where, it's, where they talk about a decade-long study of over 1,800 cardiovascular patients, and they found that complications arose from the people, um, sorry, let me read, a decade-long study of over 1,800 cardiovascular patients found that complications arose for the people prayed for within the experiment at nearly identical levels to those not prayed for. A meta-analysis published in the Annals of Behavioral Medicine found that across 14 different studies on the topic, there was, quote, no discernible effect for intercessory prayer, end quote. What good is prayer? Now, I don't want to talk about the goodness of prayer right now. That's not the point of this passage. My point is not about prayer, but about God. Because the, 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 the thought behind how prayers are useless is because God is not answering prayers. Is God even doing anything? Is there a God? And what is he doing? Is he listening? So the bigger question is, where is God? Where is he? This, where is he? What is he doing right now as war is breaking out in Europe? Not just there, but everywhere. There's a lot of brokenness and evil in this world and in our lives and in our own souls and in those, among those we love and in our church. I know God is all-powerful, but is he really good? Is he really good? That's a big question that's been asked for a long time. I was, last week I was with the Uber driver trying to share the gospel with him and um, he brought up this very question on our way to the airport. Let's put this question on hold for now. It's a question that will be asked for the rest of your life from many people and you'll ask it from time to time. Let's put it on hold, on hold but it is, I bring it up as a question because it's a huge challenge to the main goal of the sermon's text, okay? The main goal of the sermon's text is this, feel thankful for the son's preeminence. Feel thankful for the sun's preeminence. There it is. Feel thankful for the sun's preeminence. That's the main thing. So you remain in him. That would be the effect or the, the result. But the, the point here is feel thankful for the sun's preeminence so you remain in him. Now I'm saying feel thankful. You're saying where is feel thankful in the text? PJ, there's nothing about feelings. There's nothing about gratitude in the text. That's true. But verse 15 here in your text is actually expanding the idea of verses 12 through 14, which is expanding the idea of walking pleasing to God as the result of being filled with the knowledge of God's will. So if you remember three weeks ago in my sermon, we talked about Paul praying that we'd be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that we walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And if you're walking fully pleasing to him, there are four ways that that is expressed. The fourth way is joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in this inheritance, saints in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So all of this redemption, transferring from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son, we are joyfully giving what? Thanks to the Father. And who is the son that we're joyfully giving the thanks to the father for? That's this whole passage. Okay? So this passage, is a, there's a lot of theological ideas here, but it's in the context of joyfully giving thanks to the father as a way of living a life, pleasing God in all respects uh, in answer to Paul's prayer. Does that make sense? So we, we want to feel thankful for the preeminence of the Son, because this preeminence of the Son in this passage is in the context of joyfully giving thanks to the Father. And that's why I bring up the problem of evil and suffering in the world, because that is a huge hindrance to joyfully giving thanks to the Father. If He's preeminent in everything, then why are there so many problems in the world? Why is there so much horrific violence and injustice and evil everywhere? Well... So if the goal here is to feel thankful for the, for the son's preeminence, there are three ways we're going to get to feel and experience this gratitude, okay? In verses 15 through 18, we want to feel the goodness of his preeminence over all things. Feel, uh, we want to recognize the son's preeminence over all things. 
Secondly, in verses 18b to 20, we want to see and know and feel the goodness of the Son's preeminence in all things, so over all things, and then in all things, and then lastly, verses 21 through 23, in you. Okay, so we want to think about the Son's preeminence over all things, number one. We want to think about the Son's preeminence in all things. And lastly, we want to think about the Son's preeminence in you. And hopefully by this, you can see and sense the goodness of God in the Son's preeminence. All right, let's take these one at a time then, starting with the first one, verses one, uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. The Son is preeminent over all things. He is preeminent over all things. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, but let's pick up the second phrase first. The firstborn over all creation. There's, the, there's where we're getting this first point. He is preeminent. He is firstborn. He is first over all creation, over all things. Now, this brings up a, a, an issue, not if you have a CSB, but in some translations, it's he is the firstborn of all creation. And if you say he's the firstborn of all creation, it sounds like he is also part of the what? Part of the creation. Is the son created? Was the son created? The word of is tricky. Some people say firstborn of creation is more literal than firstborn over creation. That's not true if you know the Greek language, but that's another debate for another time. The point here is you can use of in two ways. If I say he finished first of 10 contestants, that means he's one of the 10 contestants. And of means that he's included in it. First of or among the 10 contestants. Or I could say he's the coach of the team. He is the coach of the team, but he's not, he's not the players. He's, he could be separate from, even, or he's the coach of the players. He, the of there is not saying that he's one of the players, but he's of or over the players or beside the players, but he's outside the group of. So of is vague. It's a vague word in English. It's a vague uh, case in the Greek language. And the point here is that over is a faithful and true translation. We know that for at least two reasons. One is that all things were created through him and for him in the next verse, okay? And that he is, and then we know that because he, he is the image of God. So we'll get to that in a second. But let's think about firstborn because that's just one other part. So that's the of part. Let's think about the firstborn part. If you think of firstborn, that means you are born first, which means that there was a time where you, where you were born, you were given birth. And so when we think of firstborn in English, firstborn is not a concept that dominates our culture, right? And because it doesn't dominate our culture, we think of it almost strictly as chronology and being born first, which is part of what the, the term can be used for. But firstborn in a Jewish mindset and in the, in the Old Testament and even here now with Paul, it, it is more than or not, it's something beyond and even beside being born first. It refers to rank, Okay, so uh, it says in, in Exodus 4.22, Israel is my firstborn son. How is Israel the firstborn son of, of God? It's not saying that he was born first. Israel came later. Israel was after Isaac, and he was after, he's the son of Isaac and the son of Abraham. How is Israel and the nation of Israel God's firstborn? That's not speaking of chronology at that point. Or we just read it, um, Jose read it from Psalm 89 verse 27, that David is going to be his firstborn, the king of, the, uh, the king of all the earth. Okay? How is David the firstborn? He's not even the oldest among his brothers. He's the youngest of his brothers. But he's the firstborn. It's speaking of rank. It's speaking of primacy. It's speaking of supremacy. The son is supreme over all. He ranks higher than all. He is primary over all. And that's the assertion that he is the firstborn over all things. He is primary. Now, there are several reasons why he is fit to be primary and supreme and preeminent. That's our key word for the sermon. Preeminent above all things. There are several reasons in verses 15 through 18. I think I have six of them, but you don't have to count them. Just kind of follow along as we go 15 through 18. One reason here is that he, he is the image of God in verse 15. It says in 15a, he is the image of the invisible God. Notice he is not in the image of God. We are made in God's image. See, the Son here is not made or created in the image of God. He is the image of God. Now, when we think of images, we think of images as deficient and defective or not, not equal to the thing that it's imaging, right? 
So if we think even of like a mirror reflection, well, I could see myself in the mirror, but it's not an actual person in the mirror, it's just a reflection. But that might be the most accurate of all reflections, right? Looking in a mirror. But Jesus is the image of God in perfect, he is the perfect and complete image of the Father. Okay? He is the perfect and complete image of the Father. In other words, there's nothing you can see or know about the Father that you can't see or know of the Father in the reflection of the Father who is the Son. In other words, the Son reflects the Father completely and fully without any deficiency or any lack. Therefore, everything the Father is, the Son is. Because he is the image, the perfect and complete image of the Father. The complete reflection of the Father. And so we get verses like John 1.18. You can turn there if you're fast enough. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. And the reason he can reveal him is because he perfectly images and reflects him. John 14, 9 through 10, you know this, when Jesus was there at the last, the last night with his disciples, and Philip says, show us the Father, Jesus says in Acts 14, verse, um, verse 10, or he says, the one who has seen me, verse 9, has seen the Father. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe, it, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The Son is the perfect reflection of the Father so that everything you see and know about the Son is an exact, accurate um, reflection of who the Father is without any deficiency. Okay, so that's another way of saying that the Son is God. Being the image of God means that He is God. That's the first reason why, um, why He is fit to be preeminent over all things. The second reason is in verse 16. Go back to Colossians 1 verse 16. All things, all things were created for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. So the second reason is that he is the creator of all things. All things are created through the son, through the Lord Jesus Christ. All things. And when we say all things, we mean the visible things and the invisible things, the things in heaven and the things on earth. Everything is under him. He created them all. So therefore, if he's the creator and they are creatures, he is over them. There is no, there is no contest. There's no closeness. We'll get to this in, as we keep moving on. There is no way that they can be anywhere close to the creator because by definition, they are created. He is, by definition, creator. So he will be above them and beyond them. And he has created all things, visible and invisible, uh, in heaven and on earth. So if we're talking about Invisible thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. What might be invisible thrones or rulers or authorities? What's that? Satan? Yeah, demons. Demons can be uh, invisible rulers and authorities. Are there any other authorities besides demons that are uh, invisible to us? Angels, right? Angels. Angels and demons. And uh, we're going to pick up on angels when we get to chapter 2. That's one of the concerns Paul has here for the saints at Colossae. But the point here is that whether angels or demons, what other, what other spiritual authorities and dominions and domains that they have, all of that exists through who? Through Christ. He, has, he is the creator. And so he is above all of them. Praise God that he is above angels and demons. All angels and all demons. He is not equal to them. He's not the most supreme angel, as some false religions will say. No, he is above them. He is the creator of them. Not only angelic or invisible and heavenly beings, but also what? Earthly ones. And we feel that more today than ever. This should be good news to us today more than last, last Sunday. That the Son is the creator of all earthly dominions and rulers and authorities. The office, office of the president, whether the president of the United States, that office, or the president of the Russian Federation, or the president of Ukraine, all of those offices are under the, under the creator, Jesus. Earthly, visible rulers and dominions are under this Jesus, the creator of all. All right? Not only is he the creator of all things, if you keep on going, verse 16, it's a, small, it's a small phrase here, but it's so big in importance. It's the last three words of verse 16. All things are created through him and for him. 
to him or for him. In other words, he is not only the creator of all things, he is the goal of all things. The son is the goal of all things. And here's where we get all kinds of good truth for our souls. All things are created for him. This is huge because this answers the ultimate question, why? I say this every so often when I preach, right? The ultimate, the all questions why, right? Kids, when kids start asking parents questions, they say, oh, why, why were you born? Oh, because my parents. Well, why are your parents born? Oh, because of their parents. Well, why? And they keep asking why, why, why? And you keep getting back further and further to the ultimate source, right? Or the ultimate reason, or the ultimate motive, or the ultimate goal even. You could even go ultimate source or ultimate goal. But why questions keep pushing you back to, a, to a, a greater goal or a greater cause and a greater source. And here, the answer, why do things happen? Why are you here today? Why did you live in the generation you lived in? Why are things happening in Ukraine the way things are happening? Why are things in your life exactly the way they are right now? Why? Why anything? All things are for him. The answer is for the son. That's why. For the preeminent son. That's the answer to all your why questions ultimately. Why? Fill in the blank. Why what? Well, for the preeminent son. That's why. Because all things are created not only through the preeminent son, but for the preeminent son. He is the goal of everything. All things are governed by God who is sovereign and providentially ruling over everything. He's governing everything to the goal of his son. What does it mean that it's for him, for the goal of the son? That means that all things are for his honor. All things are for his exaltation, for his glory, for his agenda, for his pleasure. And this is good news for us. It doesn't sound like good news for us. It sounds like good news for who? For the son, because everything's for him, right? It's good news for us once we get to point three. But just in anticipation of, verse, of, of, of point three, he's going to make us holy and faultless and blameless in verse 22. And he's going to include us in his exaltation. Okay, so it is good for us, but we'll get there eventually. The point here is that I want you, I'm calling you to recognize that Jesus is the goal of all things in this world. Recognize that Jesus is the goal of all things in your life. And church family, look at one another and remind one another of this final goal. He is the goal of all things. Look at verse 17. Not only that, another reason here is that he is before all things. In other words, he precedes all things. He existed before everything. That's why he deserves to be preeminent over everything, because he existed before them. It speaks of the son's preexistence and eternality. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. When was the word? In the what? The in the beginning. And the word was with God, and the word was what? Was God. And then verse 2 says, he was in the beginning with God. When? In the beginning, he was already there. He existed before the beginning. At the beginning, he was. He's always existed, and only God is eternal. Therefore, he deserves, and it's fitting that he is preeminent over all things. Another reason in verse 17, not only is he before all things, by him all things hold together. Jesus sustains all things. This is the fifth reason. He sustains all things. He's holding everything together right now. If Jesus were to stop sustaining all things, the world would not explode. It would just stop being. It would just cease to exist. Jesus sustains everything. Everything is completely dependent on him. Completely dependent on him. And it always has been and always will be. Even in his incarnation, everything is completely dependent on him. That's why nothing created can actually challenge him. Because all would-be challengers are completely dependent on him for their existence. He has to hold them and their existence together for them to even sin against him. For Satan to challenge Jesus, Jesus has to continue. Jesus will continue to hold him together so that he can even challenge him. It's just not even fair, right? There's, there's no one who gets even close to challenging the son. Nothing would exist if he didn't sustain them. All rebellion, all countries, all armies... Everything exists because he sustains it and chooses to sustain it. Let's pause now and just take a deep breath, a real deep breath. Take a, take a deep breath, hold it. I don't know if you do box breathing. Take a, take a breath for three to five seconds, hold it for three to five seconds, and then release it slowly. Okay, just do that. Listen to what's going on around you right now. 
Ross is whispering, kids are crying. Cause your mind to be aware of all the goodness existing around you this moment. Your lungs that took in the air, the air passageways that are clear enough for you to take a deep breath. Your heart beating, your mind thinking, the chair that you are sitting in that is upholding you, the building that is not collapsing around us, the people around you, this moment, all of it and all things are sustained and held together right now by the sun. That's why it makes no sense to glorify anybody else, right? It makes no sense to take all the credit for whatever victories you have and any accomplishments you made. Like, you wouldn't exist. You would stop existing without the sun. Society must recognize, everyone must recognize, and bow down to Jesus as Lord and God and preeminent. He's the preeminent one because he is Lord, and those who don't recognize this will face his judgment. Sixth reason here of why he's preeminent over all things, he is the head of the church. Look at verse 18. He is also the head of the body, the church. That means Christ leads the church. He rules the church. He gives life to the church and nourishment to the church. And he's preeminent over the church. And he directs the church, uh, which is part of his creation, since the church that is created is the new creation. Okay, so here are reasons why Christ is, why it's fitting that he is preeminent over all things. He created all things. He's the goal of all things. He's the image of God. He sustains all things. He precedes all things. And he's the head of the body of the church. So this tells us, at least a short answer now, why God does what he does. Everything is for the sun, right? Everything is for the exaltation, the preeminence of the sun. So let's go back to the problem of evil. I mean, I'm thinking about this. I hung out with one of my family members uh, just recently who was diagnosed with a terminal illness, gonna, you know, pass away in one to, I guess, uh, one to four years left or one to three years left in terms of his diagnosis. We have members in our church who have terminal cancer right now who are, um, expecting to die soon. Why does God allow this? Why does he just erase cancer? If he sustains all things, he sustained the cancer. Can he just stop sustaining it? He can. Why doesn't he do that? And then we have other burdens there like that are before death, like infertility or singleness or work or family burdens. We have all kinds of burdens in our lives, don't we? That, that the Lord can just snap, not even have to snap, and it could go away. But Why? If you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, you know what, Christianity teaches the existence of an all-powerful, all-good, and all-loving God. But how can that belief of all-good and all-loving be reconciled, and, and all-powerful, how can all that be reconciled with the horrors that occur daily? One of our members posted a, a, a video of, of what's going on in Ukraine, where a, a, a car is trying to escape down the freeway, and a tank is just coming here, and then the tank just runs over, just completely over and demolishes the car. The Lord could have caused the tank to cease to exist. He could have caused the person to miss. He could have done all kinds of things, but he didn't. The tank went right over the car. It just crushed the car. And God's all powerful, and he's all good, and he's all loving. If there's a God, he must be either all powerful, if you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, he must either be all powerful or all good, but, but not powerful enough to bring, uh, he might be all good, but not powerful enough to bring evil to an end, or he's all powerful, but doesn't want to bring it to an end. Either way, the God of the Bible couldn't exist, PJ. For many people, this is not just an intellectual problem, this is even um, a, a personal conundrum as they th deal with pain and suffering in their own lives. Mar lives marred by tragedy, abuse, and injustice. Horrific pain. How shall we respond to this question? I can't, I, this could take many hours to respond, so I'll just give you a brief, short Christian uh, response, a sketch to this answer. If God himself has suffered, the, the main thing is, if, he, if God suffered, then suffering is not senseless. It's not meaningless. So first of all, if you're not a Christian, I want to say this. If you don't believe in the God of the Bible, my question to you is, what is the meaning of suffering then? Like, it's okay to, to knock the Christian view of, the, like, how suffering makes sense and what it means, but you have to come up with an alternative answer to the question, what does it mean? I mean, you could say that it's meaningless, but then if it is meaningless, then that makes suffering way worse. That has absolutely no purpose at all. It's just random. I mean, that's okay if that's your answer. It's just that's not a better answer than the Bible's answer. But there's two, there's two other things I want to say. Number one, if, God, if you have a God that's great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped the suffering in this world, if he's so big and transcendent that you're, you could be mad at him for not using his power, 
to stop the suffering of this world, then we must at the same time have a God who's so transcendent, he's so transcendent that he can have a good reason for why he's doing things that's beyond you, right? If he's so big that you could blame him for being so powerful that he could stop it, then, then at the same time he must be so big that he can have a reason that is beyond your comprehension. Or he can be so big that he doesn't have to answer to us. You can't have both at the same time. Either he's big enough that he's beyond you and you, could, you just recognize that, or he's not big enough. But if, you, if he's big enough for you to get mad at, then he has to be also big enough to be beyond you. You can't have it both ways. That's first of all. Second of all, though we don't know why he allows these horrors to continue, and even the horrors of this last week, God cannot be indifferent or uncaring because the Christian God, unlike the gods of other religions and even atheism, the God that doesn't exist, this God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he becomes a man and enters into the suffering and indeed hangs on a cross and takes the worst evil and injustice that has ever been committed onto himself. I admit that doesn't satisfy all the questions here, but it's at least enough to say that suffering is not meaningless. God cares and God is involved. All right, so all things are for this preeminent son. He is preeminent over all things. That's number one. Secondly, you can't really feel thankful until we get to the point three, but let's just build it here. So one, he's preeminent over all things. That's great for him. Not so much for us, but at least it's great for him. Okay, secondly, he is preeminent not just only over all things, but in all things, in all things. Okay, where do we get this? Look at verse 18. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. So that, here's the purpose. Why? Why is he the beginning and the firstborn from the dead? For what end? To what end? So that he might come to have what? First place. And then these next two key words are key. First place in what? Everything. Not over everything. That's true. That was the first point. But also in everything. Jesus Christ has first place in everything. He's the firstborn. And how did he become fit to do this? Well, it says in verse 18 that he is the beginning. So by, be, by being the beginning of the new creation, he is fit to be preeminent in all things. And not only by being the beginning of the new creation, but also being the firstborn from the, the dead. And these really are the two, two similar ideas, just two ways of saying the same thing in a sense. Same idea. He's the beginning of the new creation. Why? Because he is the firstborn. Now, this is chron chronological this time, right? He's the first one who came out from the dead and rose from the dead, bringing in the resurrection. So he is the beginning of the new creation, the first part, the first occurrence, the first body, first physical matter of the new creation is his body. And so just like he precedes all things in verse 17, he precedes all creation, therefore he's preeminent overall. He precedes all things of the new creation, therefore he's preeminent in all things. Not only that, verse 18, he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, that doesn't mean he's the first one who rose from the dead. Did anyone rise from the dead before Jesus that you can think of? Lazarus. The, um, the woman, the, the widow at uh, Nain, I think, her son, Jesus raised that. And then Jesus raised also that boy. And then Jesus raised another little girl, Elijah and Elisha. I think Elisha did too, but Elijah raised the Shunammite's son. So Jesus is not the first one who rose from the dead, but he's the first one who rose from the dead with a resurrected body, a glorified body. He's the first of the new resurrection. I mean, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but guess what? He died again. That old body just never fails. <laughs> Gonna die again. Thanks, thanks, Lord. You know, um, get up from the dead to die again, because that's not the first body of the new of the new creation. Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first of many who will be resurrected. He's the first one of many humans from every tribe and people and language and nation who will all get resurrected bodies. He's the first. And I love this phrase. Um, I saw it from a sermon from 2004, but other people have said this as well. The tomb of Christ becomes the womb of the new creation. Just like Mary had the Son of God, God the Son, in her womb, the tomb where his dead body lay, that tomb was the womb. And the firstborn of the new creation came out of that tomb. And the new creation has begun in Jesus. 
And the goal of it all, like I said in verse 18, is so that he might come to have first place in everything. This is what it means for everything to be for him. Not just in creation, but even in the new creation. All things are so that he would have first place, not just over everything, old, old creation, but first place in everything, old and new creation. His preeminence ought to be recognized in everything. He is not only preeminent above all things, but in all things. He is not only greater than everything, he is greater in everything. Again, like I said, not just the old creation, but the new creation. This means, very practically for you, he is preeminent above and in our church. He is preeminent above and in the government. He is above and, uh, preeminent above and in the family, in your family. He is preeminent above and in your marriage. He is preeminent above and in your singleness. He is preeminent above and in your job. Preeminent above and in your classroom, in your school, in your sport, in the art that you enjoy, in the music you enjoy, in the relationships you have, in the trial you are going through, in the challenge that you're facing, in your health, in your wealth, in your knowledge, in your wisdom, in your reputation, in your influence, in your power, in your control, in your comfort, in your possessions, in your ambitions. Christ is above all of that. He's preeminent above all of those things, and he's preeminent in all of those things. Not just separate from them, but he's in all of it as above and preeminent. And we have the privilege of recognizing this preeminence. It is good for us that he's preeminent in this church. It's good for us that he's preeminent in my sin and in my, my struggles in my own life. It's good for me that he's preeminent in my marriage. That's good for us. Question for you, what are you replacing Christ with as preeminent above and in your life? What is preeminent above, above you this weekend? And what is preeminent in the things you value most this weekend? Or I could say, who is preeminent in the things you value most this weekend? For me, my struggle is that I wrote down here just in confessing my sin and reflecting and journaling, I'm not believing that Christ is preeminent over me and being, I'm, I'm believing, uh, he's not preeminent over me, being ultimately disciplined in Bible reading, prayer, exercise, and maintaining a perfectly balanced schedule with all my loved ones, perfectly served and engaged by me. So what I've been idolizing is a disciplined and efficient PJ. Disciplined and efficient PJ is above all things in my life. At least I felt that. I, feel, I felt that this weekend. And I've seen my unfaithfulness in this. I'm teaching a membership class this morning, and I'm thinking I'm so excited. We got our new directories with our seven new members in our new directories. I'm so excited for this new directory, and it's so crisp, I haven't even prayed through it. And I got it on Tuesday, or I don't know, Wednesday or something like that. And that's not just... Uh, failure, that's sinful. I mean, my calling is to be devoted to the ministry of not just the word, but the ministry of what? Prayer. I mean, that's why I don't have another job. That's why this is my job. Part of my job is praying. And I feel convicted and I just feel so torn over by my disappointment that my disappointment becomes preeminent in my life over Jesus. But Christ is preeminent in my failures. He's preeminent in my sin. He's preeminent in my um, my, 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 the evil, the, 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 the unfaithfulness of my life. And he wants me to treasure not becoming more faithful by myself and just gritting my teeth and doing it. He wants me to recognize his preeminence even now in my failures. If you don't think you have any challenges, just look at your time and where there's internal tension in your mind and heart and you'll find what's preeminent to you. And if you know and are convicted by whatever preeminent idol, idols you have in your life, let me just encourage you with this. Jesus is not telling you to fix yourself this morning. He's not telling you that the way to recalibrate your life to Christ's preeminence is to fix yourself. He's telling you to look at him. He's telling you to call out to him, to rest in him. And as you rest in him, then desperately and dependently follow him. You know, the world will tell you that putting Christ as preeminent in your life is just too extreme. It's good to have Jesus as one of the preeminent things in your life. Just don't be so extreme with Jesus as Lord of everything. But we know that no one can serve two masters, right? Everyone has an ultimate preeminent person. So if you're not a Christian, you might be like, this is why I don't want to be a Christian, because you're telling me that I have to submit to this Jewish man and everything in my life has to be under him. All my relationships have to be under him. All my money and possessions have to be under him. All my ambitions have to be under him and for him. And he has to be number one in those things as well as above those things. That sounds like slavery. 
That sounds like not being free. That sounds like Jesus is kind of oppressing me. Get, like, get off me, Jesus. Like, give me, let me breathe. Let me stretch my arms a little bit. Can I be me? If you're not a Christian, again, Jesus can feel like a straitjacket on your freedom. But you need to realize that everyone has an ultimate treasure. Everyone has someone or something that's preeminent in their lives. And guess what? Whatever's preeminent in your life is your master. And you know what that preeminent thing does in your life? It does hinder and inhibit your choices of freedom to other things. If you're saying, I don't want to have any master. I want to be free to never be committed to anything. Well, you're committed to uncommitment. And so you, you're, you're not free to choose to, to commit to something because you're committed to not committing to something. Does that make sense? Everyone has a master. You don't have to be Christian to have a master. You just need to be human. And that master will enslave you in a sense. It will dictate, he or she or it will dictate your decisions and your life. The only difference for us, so you need to realize that no one is ultimately free. You're just free to serve whichever master you have. But there's only one true and worthy preeminent treasure. There's only one worthy master. There's only one master who will actually die for you and, and serves you for his glory. And that's Jesus. So why is he to be preeminent in all things? We talked about how he's preeminent in all things by being the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. But why is it fitting that he's preeminent in all things? That's verses 19 and 20. And you have two reasons here. Why it's fitting that he's preeminent in all things. Verse 19 is reason one. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And reason two is in verse 20. And through him to reconcile everything to himself. So the two reasons why it's fitting that Christ is preeminent in all things is because he is God. That's verse 19. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. So it's not just for referring to the fact that he is God the Son with the, with, with the divine nature. That's true. But he's also, as a human, God, God's deity, the fullness of God, dwells in Jesus bodily. And we'll get to that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. So when we say that God, God dwells in Jesus, God dwells in you too. But there's a difference here. What dwells in Jesus here? Not just God dwells in him, but verse 19 says what? What of, what of God or what about God dwells in him? The fullness. The fullness of God dwells in him. As the image of God and then now as, as the God-man, the fullness of God dwells in him. In other words, he is God in the flesh. If he has the fullness, then he is lacking nothing that God has. Now this is aiming at the Colossian false teaching that the son is great, but he's not full and sufficient as the center and goal and ground of their lives. So he's already flagging some of their error that we're going to talk about when we get to Colossians 2. But the first reason why he's fit to be preeminent in all things in your life is because he's God in the flesh. Second reason why he's fit to be preeminent in all things in your life and in all things in this world is because he has made peace in this whole world by his cross. Look at verse 20. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Notice here, he has reconciled what to himself? Everything. And how did he do it? By making peace through his what? Blood. Through his blood shed on the cross. So through his death on the cross. This means, in some ways, that we'll get to this in the next point, that, that Christ offers reconciliation and peace to those who will repent and believe in him. For sinners who will repent and believe in Jesus, they will have the hostility and alienation removed from them, and they will become part of the people of the Son, in the kingdom of the Son. So reconciled humanity, and if, if humanity gets reconciled, then guess what else gets reconciled to God? Just like when humanity fell into sin, all of creation fell into sin. When humanity is now reconciled to God, what else is reconciled to God? All of creation. That's Romans 8, right? That the creation is groaning. So when you have a new humanity, you get a new creation with that new humanity. Just like the old humanity fa fell and failed. And so the old creation was under the curse. And so all things, is not just people reconciled to God, but all things in its right order, which gets us to a problem here. When it says reconcile everything to himself, does this mean that demons will be reconciled to God? Does this mean that unrepentant and unbelieving, Christ-rejecting people who will ultimately reject Christ, does that mean that they'll be reconciled to God? How many of you say Yes. It says reconcile everything, right? How many of you say no? 
Okay, no, it doesn't mean that they're going to be reconciled to God. So we have a problem here. We either have to understand reconciliation a little bit different as not peace with, like in terms of favor, or we need to, we need to change everything to make this, to understand this passage. You guys see my, my point here? You see the problem here? Okay, so, the, I, and I don't know which one is right, but I, I have options for both, okay? The point is that what I'm saying is true, but I don't know which way it's true. So here are the two possible solutions, okay? Either one, reconcile in the sense of, of Colossians 3.11. This is John Piper's solution, Colossians 3.11. Look at Colossians 3.11. In Christ, there is neither, there's not Greek or Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. In other words, everyone is free to come to Christ, right? All categories are free to come to Christ, all people from all these things. But then it says this at the very end. But Christ is all and what? Christ is in all. The all here in Colossians 3.11 does not mean all, all of these people without exception, universally. It means all of those who are in Christ. He's in all of them. So here the all is limited by those who are in Christ. Does that make sense? So maybe when it says reconcile everything to himself in verse 20, it's everything that will be in him, he's reconciled. That's one way of looking at it, and that's a valid way of looking at it. The other valid way of looking at it is reconcile not in terms of restored relationship with God, but everything being put back in right order. So, for example, I even used the word earlier today. I said, how do you reconcile God being all-powerful and all-good and the suffering in this world? I said, how do you reconcile that? What I'm saying there is not how do you make peace between those two things in terms of like a relationship, but how do these things fit in proper order and don't clash as a contradiction? Does that make sense? So when it says that Christ has reconciled everything in himself, what it could mean is not that everything, just those who are in Christ. What it could mean is God, through Christ, puts everything in its right order. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example. I'll give you a spiritual example and then a real life example, at least from our current world. So Colossians 2.15 says that in the cross, Christ has disarmed the rulers and authorities, the spiritual rulers and authorities. He has disarmed demons and put them open and put them open to public shame. By Christ dying, he has, is it right that demons are terrorizing the world? No. Is it right that they can hold sin against people who ought to be forgiven? No. So how does he disarm them? He disarms them by dying on the cross for, their sin, for the sinners. And he disarms them. Not only does he disarm them, he publicly humiliates them. That's a way of putting things right. Does that make sense? Let me put it in a world sense. How do we put the Ukraine situation right? One is to disarm the whole army, right? The, 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 the perpetrating sinful evil side. To, to disarm the army and then to openly shame the one who is wrong, Right? And they, they, they crawl back in shame and admit that they're wrong and they're publicly shamed and they have no more weapons. They can do no more damage and there's no one who's deceived by their shameful action. That would make it right, correct? That, that, that's so, that could be what's being said here. By Christ dying, he reconciles everything, but even the evil things, he puts it in its right place so that it fits with Christ's order and Christ's world and Christ's righteousness and justice. Either way... Whether that way of making everything right or reconciling those who are in Christ, the point here is that in Christ, everything will be reconciled to God. Everything will be made right. That's why he deserves preeminence in everything. All right? And he does it by dying on the cross for sins, and we'll get to that here with this last point. Okay, so point one, the Son is preeminent over all things. Point two, the Son is preeminent in all things, even in the new creation. And point three now, the Son is and will be preeminent in you. And this is where it turns into good news, or at least the logical connection for good news. How does Christ make himself preeminent in us? Now, there's no preeminent word in 21 through 23. Where am I getting preeminence from? It says, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds and as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you uh, by his physical body through his death. And what's the purpose of this reconciliation? To do what? Verse 22. To present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Are you excited to one day be holy, completely faultless, and completely blameless before God? With zero shame, zero struggle, zero rebellious selfish thought in your mind or in your feelings or in your actions? No guilt, no shame ever? That's coming. Full holiness, uh, faultlessness, and blamelessness. But if you are holy, faultless, and blameless, then who's preeminent in your life? 
Jesus. And he'll be completely and comprehensively and functionally preeminent in your life. This is what I'm talking about, the, the preeminence of Christ in you. He does this to present you as fully under his preeminence, joyfully submitted to that preeminence, that you are holy, faultless, and blameless. Okay, so that's where I'm getting point three. That's where I'm getting my wording for point three. Christ's preeminence in you through your holiness, faultlessness, and blamelessness, that final holiness, consummate holiness. Now, how does he get us to this consummate holiness? There's two ways in this passage, verses 21, 22, and then verse 23. The first way he gets us to this consummate holiness is by reconciling you. Because look at verse 21. When you look at verse 21, look in the mirror. Verse 21 is a mirror of your life. Look at your face when you see verse 21. This is your history. Before you were a Christian, here's, here's you. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. That was you, right? You were hostile towards God, you were alienated from God, and that showed up in your evil actions, in your Christless, Christ-belittling actions. You were hostile and evil in your mind and in your life, in your actions. But here's the good news, verse 22. But now, are you still hostile and alienated? No, but now he has what? Reconciled you. He took care of your sins, that's the sins that's between you and him. He reconciled you how? By his physical body through his death. So this is how God reconciles you to himself. He sends his son and Jesus dies on the cross for your sins. Not only paying the penalty and getting rid of the enmity and the alienation and the hostility, but then he starts to change you by that death. That death purchases your transformation so that you grow in holiness and faultlessness and blamelessness and maturity and in recognizing and enjoying and loving the preeminence of Christ in you. The death of Christ forgives you, reconciles you, and changes you. It transforms you by his physical body dying on that cursed tree. God made him who knew no sin on that tree to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he hangs in darkness, as God pours out his wrath on Jesus, so that you can be forgiven and made whole and faultless and holy and blameless before him in the end. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news about Christ's supremacy and preeminence. The progression of the passage, actually, this is the climax of the passage. It doesn't seem like it because talking about all this greatness of Christ and his preeminence, this is the climax of the passage. The point here is that the preeminence of the Son is the greatest good for us. Why? Here's why it all comes together for your good and your gratitude. Because though it would have been horrible in our alienation, it has now become bearable in our reconciliation, and it will inevitably become wonderful. You get that? Without Christ, this would have been horrible that he's preeminent for us because we'd be damned in our sins forever, right? That would be horrible. But right now in our broken lives, but our saved lives, it's bearable in our reconciliation. And one day, inevitably, it will become wonderful with no sin and brokenness in our lives. So this could have been a tragedy for you. And sadly, for those who are not in Christ, this is a tragedy for them in their lives. But this is not a tragedy for you. For you... This is like you winning the greatest lottery in human history. Except it's not luck. And it's not coincidence. And it's not accident. And it's not mere happenstance. You won the lottery because it was the father and son's design and goal and plan to give you the lottery. To give you himself. To reconcile you and make you holy and blameless and faultless. And he accomplished this through the power of the Holy Spirit in the gospel. How deep the Father's love for you. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to be faultless and blameless and holy in the preeminence of Christ. You're part of this preeminence. He wants us to meditate on Christ as preeminent overall and in all and in us so that we would see that his reconciling work and the purpose of all of this is for our good, for our final holiness and faultless. Christ's preeminence fully functioning and realized in us. All of the preeminence and fullness and firstness and supremacy of Jesus for you. For you. That's why we should be feeling thankful 
in crazy tragedies in this world and in evil because all that preeminence is for you in him. If you're not a Christian, here's an invitation to you. You are alienated from God. You're hostile to God in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. You're a sinner who is damned and condemned before God because all of us are damned and condemned before God. But God sent his son, his preeminent son, to live the life you should have lived, to die on the cross with his physical body on the tree, dying for your sins, shedding his blood, paying the price for your sins, and rising from the dead if you will repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, God is calling you this morning to repent from your sins and trust in him. Now the reason of this, um, the reason... Paul puts this here is that it sets it up, him up for the rest of the letter about recognizing the preeminence of Christ, but we'll get to that later. Let's go to the last verse here, verse 23. So not only is, uh, will Christ be preeminent in you by, him, by reconciling you to himself, but by you remaining in him, look at verse 23. If indeed, this is true not for everyone, but only for true Christians. And what are true Christians according to verse 23? If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That's it. So how do you experience this preeminence? By Christ reconciling you, but also God will use your remaining in the faith. You're being grounded and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So brothers and sisters, keep believing in Jesus. That's the point. Keep believing in Jesus. He is the reason why you will not, I mean, he is your ground and you need to stay on Jesus and not get shifted away. When I read this to my kids, I said, okay, let's figure out how to, how to display this. So we have a little poof, a big white poof ball thing. And like, we just had the kids sit on it and we tried to shift them off by pushing them off. You know, kids would they enjoy that, but they all tried to get their oldest brother off the poof, you know, eventually took three of them to finally push him off. But, but the point here is like he was trying to stay on the poof and not get shifted off. And this is what's happening. According to Ephesians 4, there are winds of doctrine and waves of teaching that are trying to push and crash and blow you off of standing firm, established, grounded in Jesus, the preeminent son. Those winds will come inside, from inside this church, sadly. Hopefully not from this pulpit, but sometimes I could say wrong things. I'm not inerrant. But there will be winds that shift you and try to shift you and push you off. The calling here is for you to remain grounded in the preeminent sun and don't move. Stay grounded. Stay steadfast. Don't shift when pushed away by preeminent posers and imposters. No one is preeminent but Christ. All those who are truly saved will endure to the end. Let me close here with some application from this, this section, 21 through 23. Church family, help one another remain in the faith. Help us remain grounded and steadfast and not shifting from the gospel hope. How can we help each other? Bear each other's burdens. Share your burdens and confess your sins and pray for each other. Remind each other to keep trusting in Jesus. Resolve to keep trusting in Jesus together. Gather every Sunday. Your gathering here helps us remain grounded in Jesus. Hear God's word. That's what you're doing right now. You're listening. That helps us remain grounded in Jesus. Take the Lord's Supper. We're going to take the Lord's Supper tonight. That helps us remain grounded and steadfast in Jesus and not shifting away from Jesus. Take it every week. And then sing to one another as commanded in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, that you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. Christian brother and sister, remain focused on the preeminent Christ. Meditate on the goodness of the Father for you. Here is love. Vast as the ocean. Think about his love now, about the preeminent Christ and how it's for you. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood. When the prince of peace, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? We will never be forgotten throughout hands eternal days. I mean, this love is so great. One of my favorite verses, which is not theological at all, it's just very poetic of showing the greatness of the love of God. It goes like this. Could we with ink the ocean fill? Or were the skies, the heavens, were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill? Was everything a pen and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll, all the heavens, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song.
Christ's preeminence is for you. If you're discouraged, again, God is not telling you to fix yourself. He's telling you to look to Jesus, the preeminent son. Feel thankful for the son's preeminence so that you remain in him. Again, we're trying to joyfully give thanks. The good news is that this holy, all-powerful, creative, um, preceding, sustaining, uh, firstborn from the dead son who has reconciled you, he is for you. The infinite God is for you and for us in him. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, all glory.